There's a, a preaching story that's been going around for a while, and when I say a preaching story, I mean it probably didn't happen, but it sounds like it could have, so we'll just go with that. The story goes like this. There was a four-year-old girl who had a little play date with her friends, and she was just so excited about God and Jesus that she was telling her friends all about God. And her parents are kind of listening in, and they're like, oh, that's cute. You know, she's talking about Jesus. And this four-year-old girl is telling her friends all about God and how he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And she added one interesting detail that caught her parents' attention. She told her friends, yeah, God the Father, his name is Howard. And the parents kind of laughed, you know, they kind of remembered it. And, and once the friends had left, the, the parents went up to their four-year-old daughter and they said, that's that cool how you're sharing things about God. And we heard that, you know, you said God's name is Howard. Where'd you hear that from? And the four-year-old girl said, what do you mean? We, we say it every week in church. Some of you have heard this. Our Father, who art in heaven, Howard be thy name. <laughs> Today is part two in a series that we're calling When You Pray. And the whole thing we're doing with this series called When You Pray is we're looking at the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 11, you see the, the context for this. Jesus was out praying by himself, as he often did, and his disciples noticed this. They were intrigued by the frequency and the regularity with his prayer life. And one day they had the courage to raise their hands and say, Jesus, would, would you teach us to do that too? Would you show us how to pray? And, and I believe with a smile on his face, Jesus said, I'm glad you asked. When you pray, say this. And, and then he went on to teach them the prayer that we now know as the Lord's Prayer. In case you're just joining us for, for this message, in case you missed part one of the series, I'm just going to bring up one quick point. For, for me and for, I think, a lot of us, it's easy to think of prayer as kind of this thing on the side, that it's kind of an optional thing. You know, maybe you think of Bible reading and um, prayer as, you know, those are kind of nice things that Christians do, but it's easy to let those things kind of slide and what Ben talked about in week one, I thought was so fitting to set us up for this entire series. Prayer is not just kind of this optional thing off to the side, but what he said is this, a healthy prayer life is a vital part of a healthy faith life. In fact, if someone were to come up to me for spiritual guidance and they were to say, Matt, I'm kind of struggling with this, I'm wrestling with this, can you help me? I would start with two questions. Number one, are you listening to God? Are you in his word? Number two, are you talking to God? What's your prayer life like? And when you address those two things, a lot of the spiritual questions and issues will in the long term usually resolve themselves. A healthy prayer life is vital to a healthy faith life. And so in this series, we are looking at the most popular prayer ever. And we're looking at how, the, how Jesus taught us to pray. And there's such wisdom as we look in each, at each and every part of it. Now, today, we're going to tackle this phrase, which I think is the most challenging. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be thy name. And as far as phrases in the Lord's Prayer, I think this is the most challenging to understand. Like, what are we talking about? And then also, number two, apply. Like, if God answers this, what does it look like in my life. And I think part of the reason why this is such a challenge is because the, the Lord's Prayer in the Bible has kind of become its own little sacred text within the Bible. What I mean is this. 
Whenever we have new versions of the Bible or new translations to freshen up the language, there are certain parts that translators are not allowed to touch. Basically, the translation doesn't change because people are so familiar with it, and this is one of those sections. This is basically King James-type language from the 16-1700s, and it hasn't really been updated for word order. In fact, it kind of sounds like Yoda speaking. I guess that's how they talked back in the 1600s. But as you, as you look at this, what we're going to do today is, first of all, decipher this. Let's put it into modern-day English so that we can at least start with, okay, what are the common uh, words today that we might say in, in place of this? And here's my challenge for you this week. This is something that we say a lot, frequently here at least at church. What does this phrase mean to you? As you put this into your own words, I think this will be helpful for you to think through it as you say this, this prayer. And granted, you only have like two seconds to think through this part of the Lord's Prayer as you say it. But what does this phrase mean for you? Put this in your own words. And if you're meeting with your growth group this week, you can kind of work with each other to put this phrase in your own words. But let's start with what this phrase means. First of all, the word hallowed is not a, na- not a word that we use. To hallow something means to make it holy or to regard it as holy. In the text we're going to look at today, we see the opposite of hallow. The opposite of hallow is profane. You can profane something or you can hallow something. And in this, in this request, we're saying, God, we want your name to be hallowed. We want it to be unblemished so that when people think of your name, they, they think of it as something unblemished. And then name, again, isn't something that we might use very often, but we kind of get it. Like you have a name in the community. Name is another word for um, reputation, your integrity, how people perceive you. So what are we asking when we say, hallowed be your name? We're we're saying, God, we want your reputation to be unblemished. We want it so that when people perceive you, they don't perceive a different version of you that's less than who you are. We want people to see you rightly for who you are. And so that's number one on the sheets. It's simply that when we pray, we should pray that people would see God as he is. We don't want a different version of God that we think we see, or we think that God is a, a certain way, but he's, he really isn't. What we're praying for is that people would have this clear view, as, as much as we're humanly able, this clear view to see God for who he really is. Because what we all know is that when you have a faulty version of God or a faulty view of him, that God that doesn't exist is going to let you down. And perhaps some of you, have stopped believing in a God that didn't exist because you had an improper view. You couldn't see the true God as he truly is. What we're praying is we want people to see God as he really is. That starts with me and you, but it's also a prayer for this world. So that's the big picture. That's the big idea. And what I want to do for our remaining time is look at a section of the Bible that was challenging for me for a few different reasons. But the reason I went with it for this message is because it illustrates so well what Jesus was teaching us to pray for in this petition, to to let, let God's name be hallowed. It gives the alternative of when we hallow God's name or when we profane God's name, it gives us something to remember. And it also gives us specific application for our day today. 
So the text that I found so challenging, but we're going to work through it anyway, is in a book of the Bible called Ezekiel. It's an Old Testament book. It was written before Jesus was even around. And it's in uh, chapter 36 specifically that we're going to dig into. Now, whenever we dig into one of these ancient historical texts from the Old Testament, I always struggle a little bit. Like, how much information do I try to share with you to set up where this book of the Bible came from? Do I share too much or too little? What I'm going to try to do is just give you a general backdrop to let you know the kind of world that Ezekiel was in as he wrote these words to some troubled people. Um, Many of you know this, but the whole story begins with Abraham and his son Isaac and Jacob. God gave Abraham a specific promise that he would become a great nation, and his son Jacob was also known as Israel, and that's the the name that the nation would eventually take, the Israelites, the nation or the kingdom of Israel. And so they formed a nation, and for a while, everything was good under King David, But then quickly, the kingdom split into two parts. There was the northern and the southern. The northern tribes were warned over and over again, you're falling away from God. You're rejecting God. God will take you from your land if you don't change your ways. But eventually what happened in um, in the 700s BC is the north was invaded. They were exiled. And the southern kingdom was warned. This will happen to you too unless you change your ways. Stop rejecting God and turn back to him. But it was in about 597 BC that the same thing happened to the southern tribes. The the south was being exiled. They were being taken from their land, from around Israel, from, from Jerusalem. They were being exiled all the way up to Babylon. And the nation, from all outward appearances, was done. And that's where Ezekiel came into the picture. Ezekiel was a prophet sent from God to speak to these people in the South who were being exiled. And he had two messages for them. Number one, the first message is, this is your fault. This could have been avoided, but you decided to go a different path. Your sin is now catching up with you. Not that God was punishing them, but God had to realign them in a very very severe way. And the only way to do that was to take these people from the land that God had given to this people. So for part of Ezekiel, he's warning them, he's telling them that this is not going to end well. And then for the last part of his book, he focuses a little bit differently. He's actually in Babylon with these exiles and he has a message of hope for them. And it's also a message of hope for us today. He told them, you will be restored. I know it seems like Israel is conquered and defeated and we're no longer the kingdom that God promised we would be. But Ezekiel told them, we will go home. We're being realigned in this moment and it's painful. Discipline never feels good. But God has not forgotten. God will bring us back. He was giving them promises for the future and hope that they could hang on to. And when we get into Ezekiel chapter 36, he he shares with the people something that has everything to do with our topic for today. When Jesus taught people to pray, hallowed be your name, I believe one of the sections Jesus had in mind was in Ezekiel chapter 36, 
where all the history of the Jewish people was coming up and, the, and Jesus and the people knew this was something in their history that they had to acknowledge. So here's how Ezekiel said it. So you're going to be restored, but then God said this, tell the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Sovereign means I'm still in control. I'm still in command, even though it might seem like all is lost. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to restore you to do these things. But it's for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will restore you, but it's not because you did something to deserve it. It's because I have a higher goal and a higher mission where I need to declare myself to be holy to this world, but you have been working against me. He goes on. This is what you are to tell them. Say, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord. You have profaned my name. So now I will go and do something to show the world, to show that the kingdoms and the nations out there of who I really am. And as I read through this, this was a moment for me to, to be honest with myself about how I have been similar to what Ezekiel was speaking to. If, if Ezekiel were a modern day prophet, I wonder like what, what, what he would say to me, what he would say to us. You know, God wants to have a good reputation in this world, but here Christians go out and they profane his name in different ways. And I'm not gonna speak about um, how, you know, the general public perceives Christianity, which there's plenty of stats online about that. But I think back to a story of my personal life at a previous church where I served. I was uh, teaching a, a confirmation class to seventh and eighth graders, which is basically, you know, teaching them the basics about God and all this stuff. And I viewed it really as an academic thing. Like they needed to listen, they needed to get the right answers and then do the homework. It was very academic for me, but there was one student who showed up and he was not doing the academic part at all. He wasn't memorizing the right things. He wasn't coming back with completed work. And so I decided to draw a hard line. If you don't do your work, you might as well not show up. And I said it a little bit differently. It wasn't quite that harsh, but basically the message I sent was, if you don't do the work that I expect you to do, this is not a place where you're welcome. And after that day, that student didn't come back. I got an email from his mom about a week later. She said, my son doesn't really know what he believes. He was going to this class because he's trying to figure it out for himself. But he won't be coming back now. And in that moment, it helped me to see maybe a bigger picture, that this was so much more than an academic thing where a student had to jump through my hoops to you know, complete the class. And I don't share that with you as you know, this is an, an open wound that hasn't been healed. I've, I've been healed from this. I've, I've worked through it. I've been forgiven. But I, I wonder how many of you might have a similar story to that, where you had a chance to either be a model or be a voice for the kind of God we have, a God of love, of grace, of kindness, of patience, but instead of keeping his name holy, you profaned it. 
as we talk about keeping God's name holy, and as what we mean by that is having people see clearly who God really is, the first thing that should come up in our minds are the obstructions. We need to be aware of the obstructions that keep people from seeing God as he is. And while you try to spell that on your sheets, I'm going to tell you a story. Back in college, I went to a baseball game at Miller Park. What's it called now? Ah, who cares? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a sports person, but I did go to a baseball game with my friends back in college, and we went to, to Miller, is it Miller Park? It was Miller Park. Um, and as we bought the cheap tickets, because we were college students, we saw that you know, there was a warning, obstructed view, and I didn't think anything of it until I sat down. Here's this giant pole right between home base and, and um, first base. Uh, and as I sat down, I just remember the sinking feeling like, oh, I can't even see the game. I, I have an obstructed view. I, I can't see what's going on. And, and as, I, as I thought through this message today and this topic of keeping God's name holy, I, I began to wonder, like, how many obstructions are in my way from seeing God as he really is? Beliefs that I've come up with on my own that are actually different than who God really is. Or people in my past or present who have given me a version of God through their, through their example that is not in line with who God really is. And then I got to thinking, like with the story I just shared previously, have I been an obstruction to letting God's name, his reputation, be pure? And holy. What I know, and I think what we all know, is that this is not the place to stay. I could drive this further and further about how I have failed to keep his name holy. I have, as a, as a representative of God, all of us as ambassadors of Christ, th- there's been failures when it comes to keeping his name holy. And what, what I know is this that if the focus is on someone's holiness, the view of God will be out of focus. The focus can't be, I need to be holy in order to give God an unblemished reputation. If, if that's what's going to happen, no one will ever see who God is. And as Ezekiel goes on, he takes people away from this focusing on themselves and on their own holiness or unholiness. And instead he focuses on what it means for God to keep his name holy among them. And this is where we see a foreshadow of what Jesus would do for people like me and you. We go back to verse 23. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their very eyes. What I'm going to do through you will be a clear testimony to the nations around you of who I am. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. In other words, what God is saying is he's going to address their past. The, the past guilt, the past shame, God says, I will redeem you from that. I will rescue you from wherever your sins have gotten you. I will take care of it. 
but it's better than that. It's, it's so much more than just, I addressed your past, now don't mess up again. Here's what God continues with. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and, I will, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will, in your present, restore to you a clean heart. I will forgive you. The reference to water and sprinkling was an Old Testament symbolic reference to when someone was guilty of something, sometimes the way to address it would be through this ceremonial sprinkling of water. It, it would be a sign that they have been washed by God and cleansed from him. And, and God in this moment says, no priest will be doing this. I will do this. I will sprinkle you with water. I will forgive you. He will take care of their identity in the present. And then he even takes care of their future. In that day, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your, your old heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. The way my name will be hallowed is not through a set of laws and ceremonies and commandments. The way my name will be kept holy is through an inner transformation of your heart, where your very motives will be transformed into alignment with your holy God. Not so that people look at your holiness and see God's holiness, but so that people will see what I do in unholy people. And that will declare just how holy and how awesome and how full of grace God really is. In, in a way, their, their disobedience was an opportunity for God to shine who he really was. He will restore them, but not for their sake. It was to show the world who he really was. Number three, God's name is proven holy, not through our holiness, but through his response to our unholiness. And that's the message God's people take out into this world. It's not a, hey, look at me and look at how holy I am. It's a, I'm broken, but I've been healed. I've made mistakes, but I'm not defined by them. I'm not trying to follow all the rules to, to be right with God. I am compelled to do all I can to serve and love and honor the God whose name is blameless, who, whose reputation is more than we could ever hope for. God's name is proven holy not because of our holiness, it's because of God's response to our unholiness. And as you think about this, just think about this. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, hallowed be your name, just think about what he was asking for. In order for God's name to be hallowed, it would require much more than a sprinkling of water for the people that had done some bad things. For God's name to be blameless, there would have to be a sacrifice. For the holy God to respond to our unholiness, there had to be a substitute. So as Jesus told his disciples, hallowed be your name, he was basically saying, I will make it that way. And here's our response. This is a 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just popping it up on the screen. This is something from the first century that the Apostle Paul wrote to some Christians. He said, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
You don't live for yourself. And let's bring us back to the whole prayer thing. What, what, what makes a prayer a good prayer? What do you think? What, what makes a prayer a good prayer? Well, if you start off with, dear God, I thank you, that's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. But when Jesus taught his disciples, when he teaches us to pray, he doesn't say start by you know, making a list of everything you're thankful for and then pray through your thankful things. That's, that's not bad. I'm just saying that's not what Jesus taught us to do. He said, no, when you pray, it's not about happy be my life or wealthy be my wallet or thank you for the happiness, or thank you for the things I have. The first thing is, this is not about my name or my reputation, but when I'm properly aligned with my Father in heaven, my first desire is that his name, his reputation, be something that all can see, starting with me, and then through me, the world. So here's another way to put it, number four, help me to see. When you pray, say, help me to see you and show you for who you really are. Help me to see you, Father, for who you really are. I know I have some prayer requests and I'm going to pray for health and healing and for my grandma and I'm going to pray for all these things. But first and foremost, I, I see you for who you are. You are the creator of all this universe and yet you love me. Thank you that your kingdom, which we'll talk about next week, your kingdom extends into something so much greater than anything I could see. You see so much more than I do. I want your reputation to be unblemished in this world. That's my mission, to make you known, to lead people to you. And when you start with that, and when you really think about what it means to hallowed be your name, it aligns you with a greater mission and purpose. It's not just about you, and your Father in heaven. It's about you and the Father, the Creator who oversees everything in this world. And He invites you to participate with Him in showing the world just how great He is. It's not about us showing our holiness, it's about revealing to the world how God responds to our unholiness. So there's a simple application for you this week. I'm not even going to put it on the screen, but as you think about number four, is there something obstructing your view of God? Do you think that maybe it's possible you have a view of him that's being obstructed by something, so you're not really seeing him fully for who he is as much as you're humanly able? Would you think about that this week? Has someone given you a model of God that maybe isn't accurate? Or have you started believing in your mind just something about God that maybe isn't who he is? Is your view obstructed? Is, is God's reputation in your own heart blemished in some way. Always be open when you read scripture to have God realign your belief and your view of him. And the second thing is to think about how you're showing that to the world around you. How are you showing the, the reputation of God in your life, in your marriage, in your household, at your job, in your apartment? How are you reflecting the name of God in the world you live in. And when you are struck with guilt and shame over what you've done or what you've been doing, stand before your father and know that it's not about the holiness you show to this world. It's, it's, about, it's about the forgiveness that God showed to broken people like me and you. And let's partner together as a church, 
(laughs) at least with your Father in heaven, and say, Father, help me see you and help me show you as you really are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we come to you in prayer individually and as a church, I think it's natural for us to start with where we're at and who we are. It's natural to want to tell you what's going on in our lives as if you don't know already. And I I thank you. You are such a loving God and Father that you delight to hear from us. There's no better, worse way to pray, but when Jesus taught us to pray, he challenged us to think about something else first, to think about your name, your reputation in this world, to, to make sure that we see you clearly and that we show you clearly as best that we can. I know for this message, it can be one that kind of makes us lament about the ways that we failed to do that, but I thank you that the answer to this prayer is not the holiness we show, The answer is what your son did for us. Your response to our unholiness is what we get to share with this world. That's the message of peace and forgiveness. Help us to see things clearly. Help us to show you clearly, to see you as you really are and to reveal you as you really are so that at the end of the day, it's not about people looking at us and being impressed or wowed. It's it's about people seeing our good works, our good deeds, and then praising you for it, seeing you as the source of our light. Give us wisdom this week to be able to dispel the, the lies that we might be holding onto or the obstacles that might be in our way. And give us peace as we continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of all that you are and all that you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.